Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, would you bless us with the power of your spirit in order to allow, allow us to have ears to hear and hearts and, and minds that are uh, considering this text and being blessed by this text. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last time we were in this text, we found ourselves um, with a child that was, was born tall in one sense. He was born good, if you remember. And both his biological family, really, and his mother and his sister, and also the daughter of Pharaoh himself, himself is an enemy of God. They, these three young ladies essentially um, come together in order to save the life of this child. And the passage closes with this child, probably young toddler, as maybe as old as three years old, finally being presented back to Pharaoh's daughter as her adoptive son, and she gives him a wonderful Egyptian name in Moses, in Moshe. And so that's where we found ourselves. And, and there's this interesting reality to the story of Moses. There are so many other areas in Scripture that detail little parts of his life outside of even the, the Torah itself, the, the first five books of the Bible, well, really the four books that deal with him. And if you're ever wondering, especially uh, throughout this series, but really in this sermon today, you know, where is some of this to be found, like what Kevin's saying, uh, good places to go would be, for instance, Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 17. Um, but also uh, Hebrews chapter 11. There are details that we see throughout even the New Testament text that we as Christians, we as those who have received the full canon, know about Moses that uh, maybe, maybe in a synagogue yesterday they, they can only speculate on. And so one of the things we know about Moses is that his life, while it tells us in the Torah that he lived for 120 years, God actually has three very distinctive divisions in his life. This one that we find ourselves in the early verses of this passage is the first 40 years of his life. The first 40 years, and we see this in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, I believe, uh, this 40 years is his life as an Egyptian prince, and yet he renounces that life. He, he willfully does this. More on that in a moment. And then he's going to have a period of 40 years in his own personal wilderness experience, in one sense, as a shepherd. And that will really cover today, mostly, and a little bit next week. 
And then when it would be seemingly understandable to expect him to be at the end of his life, even Psalm 90 might have certain hints of this, which is a psalm written by Moses, the first psalm ever actually written in Scripture. He actually has an additional 40 years, and it actually even makes a point at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that when it comes time for Moses to to die, for him to pass on, he still had a vitality about him uh, and a vigor that um, was obviously clearly uh, inspired by God. And so it's just kind of helpful as we begin to dive into the individual of Moses to understand he is a life of uh, three eras, three time periods. But also in our text today, we have three kind of moral dilemmas that are presented about Moses. And they will help us quickly catch up and quickly understand who this man at the age of 40 was. What were some of his qualities? What were some of his, uh, uh, what was some of his character? And he is an individual who undoubtedly could not stand injustice. Injustice. And because of topics that are found in this text today, but also in the headlines of society, I just want to have at the very beginning a very brief interlude to speak about what transpired in Memphis and then the result of that. I want to talk about the beginning just so that um, we can mention the fact that in Moses we see an individual who hates injustice. Now, we live in a day and age where media and political figures will use events and utilize events in order to stir up whatever they want to stir up. But in somebody who, is, who watched those videos this week, uh, and some of you might not know what I'm talking about, it's a sad reality. It's a sad reality in that you have this individual who's resisting arrest, and, and yet the police officers kind of give him an opportunity to stop resisting arrest, and he, he runs and escapes. And then when they catch up to him again, he, he's still resisting arrest, and, and they take it too far. We as Christians always want to be people who hate injustice. It is a good thing that people will have their day in court. That, uh, But also, we don't want to get bogged up in the headlines of the world on a Sunday. Because there is a courtroom we all face, a greater courtroom, in which... All individuals will be made to go before. And in that courtroom, the only peace that can be found is in the favored Son of God, the true good God who forsake his heavenly place, the heavenly places in order to be made for a little while lower than the angels for our salvation. And so it is good for us to focus on the biblical text because we are people who care about justice, and we care about these things, and so we can be in prayer for these things this morning. Moses is someone who hates injustice. 
We as Christians likewise should hate injustice. Whether it's excessive force against attacking someone who seems subdued or in rioting and attacking people who have no part of the problem. So now I just, again, a segue, because some of these passages in the text will come close to headlines, but, but we need to first be about the text this morning. Now, when it comes to Moses, we might miss it at first in verse 11, but right off the bat, we find a great change has taken place in Moses' life. Last time we were with Moses back in verse 10, he was a Hebrew young toddler who has been made a prince of Egypt. Now, do you remember the last time a Hebrew was made, and unlike a Hebrew, was made a prince of Egypt? Who was it? You're nodding. Joseph was. This was, Joseph was the, the favored son of Israel who was cast off into basically a pit, a pit that at first was going to be a pit of death, and yet Midianite traders and Judah, wanting to make a quick buck, decide to sell him off into slavery, and yet that slavery, his being enslaved in Egypt, led to him being a prince. Now we catch up with a Moses who, in his being cast off into the Nile, a casting off that Pharaoh desired would kill the child, he actually, through God's providence, has been made a prince. He's been made a prince of Egypt. And so, and yet, if we look at the wording of verse 11, Moses at 40 has, we've actually caught up with him, and he's now renounced his princely status in Egypt. As the Exodus text puts it, Moses grew up, and he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament tells us a little more about this time in chapter 11, starting in verse 24, and I'm going to read through 27. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin. For he considered the reproach because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since his attention was on the reward. And then, adding verse 27, this will come into play in later verses. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king or the anger of the Pharaoh, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So Moses knows what he's doing here. Compassion has called him out. A life once covered in princely blessings and to a life identifying with the afflicted. That Moses had received all that the world could offer him. He had it all at his fingertips. And yet, in all of that princely glory and all that princely wealth, he renounces, he forsakes these things in order to give his life, in one sense, to the ministry of his people. And does that 
sound like a certain New Testament figure who also has four books written about his life, who renounces heaven above in one sense in order again to take on that earthly body in order to be God in flesh, to God incarnate, to embrace that human body as, as we learned and, and, and were considering in Sunday school, not just for 33 years, but for all eternity. And yet he did that in order to rescue a people from our own enslavement and our own enslavement to sin. And so there is this beautiful sacrifice that Moses at this moment has made. And can I make a point of application for us this morning? There's a lot of suffering in this world. Too much for any one human son of Adam to handle. And we sometimes can get caught up in it all. We can, we can look at all the suffering of the world. We can see suffering in households. We can su- see suffering in homes. We can see suffering, medically speaking. We can see suffering in, and frankly, what a great many schools in our nation are teaching the children. We can see suffering and not having enough food. We see suffering and not having a place to stay. We can see suffering in people who have either isolated themselves from the world or, or been isolated maybe through circumstances. And of course, in all this, we got to keep focus that the greatest suffering needs to be alleviated is those who do not know their, the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he offers. And and my point of application is this. We have, a, we have an alive and active church. We try to bless an array of ministries. There are more ministries, there are more things than, than this, a small congregation like this can handle, but even large congregations can handle in any one place. And as the scriptures tell us, and for, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, we are all parts of a body. We are all parts of a body. And so we need to, when we see suffering, we feel overwhelmed with suffering. God has given us all as parts of the body areas and avenues in which we are to minister to. That we are, to one sense, be like unto Moses, but even more so, be like unto our Savior, to forsake some things in order to be a blessing unto others. But there's a danger in saying that. Because, for instance, this church, we have people who support daily bread. We, we probably don't need 100 people supporting daily bread. We have people supporting Life Turning Point. We probably aren't called to have all, you know, 100 people support Life Turning Point in our congregation. We have people supporting Firm Foundation. We probably... Don't need a hundred people supporting Firm Foundation. We have people supporting Crossroads Pregnancy Center. We probably don't need a hundred people supporting Crossroads Pregnancy Center. The, the list could go on. It's not that these ministries couldn't be blessed if we could give them more. But remember, again, we're parts of a body. And we want to protect ourselves as a congregation 
from arguing at the at different parts of the body and how they are inspired to work or how they go about um, doing that which the Spirit has called upon them in their life. We just read about Philippians, not considering ourselves uh, in higher esteem than others in these sorts of uh, matters. We need to trust the fact that God is at work in the suffering, that God is at work in the world, that God can use us, and we need to not pit one body part against another. What would be worse off for me if I were to lose my brain or if I were to lose my heart right now? Doesn't matter, I'm dead. What would be worse if I lost all the bones in my body or all the muscles holding them together? Doesn't matter, I'd be dead. And so my point in saying this is this. We at times in church in churches can be like, can get caught up in saying, you know, the digestive system really isn't helping with the brain. And so I don't like the digestive system, people. I just want to, you know, we need help with the brain. And so be careful when you go to look out and you consider suffering. Be careful that you're in ministry, that you have ministry, that you're partaking in to come alongside people. And, and we have a wonderful congregation in that Bruce and I, we get to hear of a lot of work that people are doing. But also, we want to not pit one another against um, each other. We can trust the Lord's leading. And so Moses goes out, having forsaken his princely office, in order to bear the burdens of those in common brotherhood to him, the Hebrews. And then we get into the second half of verse 11. At this point, this is a place where the theologians love to debate. And frankly, I think, and I've gotten this wrong in my life, uh, and I think, frankly, every translation outside the King James Version woefully gets this wrong. Woefully gets this wrong. The ESV says it's, he's beating him, right? Beating him. The King James says, smitten. If I said I smoked somebody... What do you think I did? I killed him. I smote it. The same word for beating is the same word that will be used for struck down or killing in some translations. And so it is really unfair to translate verse 11, that word, as beating. And then in verse 12, translate the same word the same root word as struck down or killed. Moses is walking upon someone who is killing a Hebrew. That's what's going on there. This isn't just like, you know, the guy with the belt out. Moses gets to write his own account of this, and he's writing that he's killing the Hebrew. And Moses gets involved. And so the debate becomes, was this a degree of murder or, or of any kind? 
And, and, and some things that Moses includes in verse 12, the fact that he looks around, the fact that he hides the body, um, have lent suspicion to this idea. And yet we actually know that from this passage, from the book of Acts in chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, that Moses is acting as a, and the one who is avenging. Let me read from the text. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. It says Moses avenged the man in Acts chapter 7. And while at times I've been sympathetic to the view, again, that Moses might have been jumping the gun a little bit in Exodus 2, I, looking into the Hebrew this week, I no longer take it that way. That word avenge in the book of Acts is a loaded word. And not just because we live in a culture that loves comics. Some of you love comics. Rob and Bruce, you will be na remain nameless. You know, you love spandex-covered superheroes. I, I don't get it. Nothing about their neon or their attire interests me. But, you know, they love Avengers. You know, what, what do Avengers do? That's the word here. They fight back. They fight back against oppression. So that's, that's the word being used here. In my notes, you guys were not going to be identified. I'm sorry for picking on you. But that should carry a lot of weight. And then the next day, Moses is out again in the midst of the people, and he sees two Hebrews struggling together, as the ESV puts it. By the way, the word for struggling there is the Hebrew word for fist fight. And one guy has gained the upper hand. These guys are beating on each other. One guy's gained the upper hand. And Moses wants him to stop. And as the translation puts it, who made you a prince or a judge over us? A better translation of the word prince would be a commander, not just because he eventually gives us the commandments, but it's actually more of a military term. But who made you a commander and a judge over us? And for good measure, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And at this point, fear strikes Moses' heart. But as I read earlier from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, it's not fear of Pharaoh's retribution. It's that these people that he came out in love to, in order to help deliver them, they would not hear him. They would not receive him. And so, in one sense, out of Egypt, God calls his son. Moses goes out to the wilderness for the first of two wilderness journeys in Moses' life. First would be of his doing because of his fear, and then the second wilderness journey, of course, will be because of the fear of the people. I... I you could speculate as, you know, what would have happened if Joseph, had, I mean, Moses had not run in fear 
but I, but I think the application here is, has fear ever made you run in areas of your life where courage would serve you better? We, we live in a time that needs courage. My wife was just talking to someone yesterday and they're remarking and remarking about how little courage there is today. Have you been putting something off? Has God long put something on your mind? By the way, make sure it's your mind first, not your heart. The heart is desperately wicked. We see a world that's just guided by heart, by feelings. If we, we need a renewing of our mind, and the renewing of our mind, it blesses our heart when those things are in union. God is, God is not the hippie of mindless feelings. But maybe God has, again, given you something on your mind to do something, a firm conviction of call. Maybe it is a way to be in service of, to helping alleviate the suffering of others. Maybe it's something a little more simple, maybe even for the unbaptized in our midst. What in your mind is preventing you from coming, from believing upon the Lord for your salvation? What is the hurdle? Moses didn't have the courage yet at this moment out of fear in his 40s, and so he spent a long time in the wilderness. He had already, as, as the scriptures make clear, he already knew what God had set him aside to do. We see this again more fully in the New Testament. God will still bless this path of Moses. God's permissive will is still at hand in this. But still, when we lack courage to be mindfully faithful to God, we run away from our fears. In those times, we continue in one sense to run away from the Lord's call for us. And Moses runs to Midian, afraid, because his own would not receive him. Now, to explain the Midianites to the Hebrews, I think probably the easiest way to do it is to run to the New Testament and to explain the Samaritans. The Samaritans were kind of like the half-Jew, right? They were like the half-relative. And so we love those par we love the parable of the Good Samaritan. We love John chapter 4 when the Samaritan woman meets Jesus at the well. By the way, Moses is running to a well. But the Midianites, they were a people that, Later on in the time of Judges, in the time of the book of Judges, there is this animosity that really develops, but they were a little bit of kinsmen by this point. Actually, who the Midianites were, were the direct descendants of Abraham. Who did Abraham have his most children with? Genesis chapter 25. His wife after Sarah passes, Keturah. He has six sons. One of those sons is Midian. This is a kinsman. This is somebody under the family of Abraham that Moses has gone to. By the way, who were the traitors that took Joseph, the prince, down into Egypt and sold him into slavery? Slavery would become a prince. They were Midianite traitors. Now, a prince of Egypt, a former prince of Egypt, is going to go to Midian 
and they're going to take him in, a former prince. And so these Midianites have a connection with Moses. That's one thing you need to know. Another thing to know is what every Jew would have been saying as they read this passage at this moment. Moses goes to a well in Midian, and they would start singing, Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Find me a fine, catch me a catch. Because both Rebecca and Rachel marry into the patriarchal families, really, in a moment where they're found at a well. When you're at a well in the first books of the Bible, you know a marriage might ensue soon. So that's part of what's going on here too. But here is Moses. He's at the well, and seven daughters come with the sheep, with the sheep to this well, and they start to feed the sheep, give them water. And every ancient Jew would be saying, whoa, three da seven daughters at a well? You're not supposed to have seven daughters at a well. That must mean Jethro has no sons. He has no sons. The sons are supposed to be the shepherd. Remember, what was Joseph sent out to do by Israel? To check on his brothers who were shepherding. Shepherding was dangerous work. And these Midianite shepherds come in while these women are giving water to the sheep, doing the best they can. And they're taking advantage of their weakness. They come in and take advantage of these women, and they're trying to get, you know, the women have to wait back, and they get to give their sheep water first. And Moses who sat down at that well, the former prince of Egypt, would stand up and arise anew as a shepherd in Midian. And he stands in the gap of seeing yet another injustice and another wrong, and he does not allow it to happen. And it's just a fantastic scene that develops these women get home early because this was obviously the practice. And they get home and there is, uh, they get home to their grandfather. Now I'm going to establish that. They get home to their grandfather, Reum. There's two debates here. There's Jethro is the father to these seven daughters. But also, there was a practice in this time. And by the way, we saw this at the end of Genesis with, before Israel died. When he made the 12 tribes, was there a tribe of Joseph? No, there's no tribe of Joseph. Who replaced the tribe of Joseph? Ephraim and Manasseh. Who were Ephraim and Manasseh? They were Joseph's two sons. So whose sons were they? Were they Israel's sons? Yes. Were they Joseph's sons? Yes. There was a cultural idea that the grandfatherly figure, probably Raul is someone who, unfortunately, he cannot go out anymore to tend to the sheep, but also Jethro is a priest in Midian, 
And so these four, seven daughters had to go out. And, and he goes, how did you get home so quickly? Basically. And so here we find what they say. I got to catch up to my notes so I can find what they say. Because it's, oh, yeah. And so the daughters share, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And, and this response is just funny. Here's this grandfatherly figure. Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him. He wants to be your shepherd. That he may eat bread. And so we find this unique reality where the people of Midian knew what they had in Moses. They knew that they had a deliverer that, who would stand in the gap, who would stand against injustice, who would stand up for what is right. And he was a, a tall kind of man. And so instead of what happened to him when Moses in his early 40s came to the Hebrews of them rejecting him, rather here are these Midianites, these, these halflings in one sense of, of Abraham, they understand what they've got and they appreciate him and they, they want to incorporate him. And so this passage closes with a once prince of Egypt, now a shepherd, and he's given a bride. And them having their first son together, they name him Gershom, which actually recalls a shared word from Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Remember, God had promised Abraham that his descendants would become enslaved sojourners in a foreign land. And this once prince who has now in our text arisen as a shepherd, he still remembered the promise given to Abraham that their suffering, that the people's suffering would be alleviated after some time. And maybe even the Midianites knew this as well, but it re re speaks of Moses' reality in this text too because he also finds himself in a place that was entirely foreign to him. A totally different world from the world he knew in his first 40 years. And, and likewise, a people who were his people rejected him in all these details that we've seen in our text this morning. It ultimately points us to a greater prince, a greater shepherd a greater deliverer. See, over and over again, we've been talking about how Moses' own people would not receive him, but I'm actually quoting from the New Testament, from John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own would not receive him. Because he is the truer Moses. He's the one whom, in coming, he was utterly rejected utterly despised, utterly forsaken. And he was not just beaten. He was killed for our sake. He was allowed to be cast off into death. And yet, through that death, through that sacrificial offering, he became the ultimate shepherd of all shepherds the perfect sacrifice for our sins 
our heavenly offering, a sweet aroma unto the Lord. He stood in the gap and he says, no, not to these in whom the Father has called. And so believe upon him today. I, I know to a great many, we already believe upon him today, but allow the call of the Spirit to, to greatly more refine yours and my life so that we might better reflect the image of the one shepherd, the prophet, the priest, the king, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to deliver his people from sin. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Father God, there is so much here in this word this morning, too much in some senses uh, to for us to understand in just a brief moment in the scriptures. But the fullness of what is here is that you are a God with a redemptive plan in the world, that you see suffering in the here and now, that you saw suffering in the past, and you have had a plan of action in order to relieve and redeem those who are suffering through the name above every name, the, the highest of all lords, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Help us to not miss the gift of Christ. Help us not to be consumed with the things of Egypt so much so that we do not forsake them for the better son to recognize you. Help us to be a better people unto you, a people who will receive you in faith and will have no shame and no fear in calling you Lord in this day and in every day of our life. In this we pray. Amen.